Welcome back to the series on Greco-Roman associations. We're moving on to a second episode on Judean groups within the diaspora, looking at how these Jewish or Judean groups both maintain their identity as an ethnic group and at the same time in, in various ways found a place for themselves within culture in the cities of Asia Minor. In the last episode, we primarily looked at potential for tension and some of the conflicts that could exist. But in this episode, we concentrate more on evidence for integration of particular Judean groups within specific cities in Asia Minor. And in the process, we look at some important inscriptional evidence and archeological evidence for Judeans. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Once again, the material that this lecture is based on and the sort of sources that are drawn on can be looked up in my works, uh, Associations, Synagogues, and Congregations, written back in 2003. My more recent book on Dynamics of Identity and the World of the Early Christians from 2009. And finally, the forthcoming source book, which should be out in November of 2012, which gathers together translations of many of the same inscriptions we're talking about here. What I've been pointing out so far is that you definitely have Judeans like Syrians and Phoenicians continuing with their cultural practices from the homeland. In the case of the Judeans, it, there are some odd things about their cultural practices from the homeland that are not the case with many other groups in the, in the Greco-Roman world. So that they have a Sabbath day that they cannot work, whereas others did not have that. That they have the idea of worshipping only one God and not identifying your God at least most, most Judeans do not do this, and not identifying your God with the gods of others. So there's some added peculiarities of this particular minority group that lead to uh, clear signs of cultural maintenance that could lead to tensions that we've already seen. So those tensions sometimes came up in some of the cities, even in the Josephus material, in some of the cities of Asia Minor that we looked at, clearly there were tensions between inhabitants of the cities, the Greeks living there, even the civic institutions, and the Judean group. But in other cities, Halicarnassus, Sardis, quite positive relations between the people living there, at least some of them, and, and the civic bodies especially, and the Judeans. So it depends what city you're looking at and what time period it is. And both Barclay and Mitchell point out that continuation of ethnic identity among Judeans in the diaspora. They also point out this next point that we've already begun to make, even in discussing the cultural maintenance, and that is the clear signs of assimilation and acculturation that are going on among some Judean groups in places like Asia Minor. And so what I want to do in the remaining time we have is look at some inscriptional evidence that points to examples, hints of the integration of particular Judean groups within the society where they live. So right now I'm going to be highlighting, you could highlight uh, evidence of more tensions and more evidence, which we'll talk about next week, of Judeans not getting along with others and others actually being violent in relation to Judeans. We have plenty of evidence that happening sometimes, some places. But today we just happen to be focusing on instances where a Judean group does find a place for itself within the host society, does have some sort of place within culture and society locally. First of all, I want to draw your attention to one of the earliest pieces of evidence we have from inscriptions for the existence of a Judean synagogue is at Akmoniah, which is inland in Asia Minor. 
This one's uh, very interesting because it's an inscription in which the Judean synagogue, the Judean gathering association, honors two archisynagogoi, heads of the synagogue, two heads of the synagogue or leaders of the synagogue, for their renovations of their meeting place. So these two leaders of the synagogue were also benefactors of the synagogue and had given money in order to renovate the building where the Judeans met. The Judean synagogue or gathering, the association, also mentions that the whole building was given to them by Julia Severa. We know about Julia Severa from other inscriptions at Aquanaya, and I've referred to her before because she's an example of an imperial cult high priestess. She is the high priestess of the temple at Akmoniah, the civic temple, not the provincial level temple, but the civic imperial cult temple. But she's also a benefactor of this immigrant group, this group of Judeans, to the point where it seems that she supplied the whole building in which they meet. It has been suggested that the leaders of the synagogue in this case, it might, the archisynagogoi, may not be Judeans that it may be an honorary title given to benefactors of the Judean group. But they may be actual leaders of the group too. We just don't know. But there's an interesting case. There's this Gentile who's a priestess in the imperial cult who the Judeans have a positive relationship with to the point of being given their meeting place. So that's the earliest evidence we have for a synagogue in Asia Minor. And that's what you see the very first time you see any evidence. Quite interesting. The problem with statements about how Judeans fit or don't fit is that it's hard to know to what degree the surviving pieces of evidence we have are representative or an anomaly. How do we decide whether this first inscription that refers to a synagogue in Asia Minor, how do we decide whether this is typical of what's going on everywhere among Judeans or whether it's just a one-time thing and it doesn't happen anywhere else? Difficult to do. We do, though, start to get more evidence that starts to show that even though we can't say it's typical of every Judean group, it nonetheless fits with some of the evidence we get elsewhere and starts to point to the integration that we're talking about, even though our evidence is so scanty. A good number of Judean synagogues in Asia Minor, Judean gatherings, Judean associations, are integrated to some degree and participant within the societies where they live. The next one I have mentioned to you before, but I want to come back to it in connection with this topic that we're talking about today. And that is the seating arrangement in the Miletus Theater. Remember that Miletus is right near Didyma. At Miletus, the member of the theater is, first of all, the place where theatrical performances happen. It's the place where the civic body of the citizens and the demo Greek democracy meet. It's also the place where when something happens, people might gather together. At Ephesus, when there was that riot, where did all the people gather to sort of express their opinion? It was in the theater. So it's sort of like a central cultural and social hub of a Greek city. And in this central cultural institution of the Greek city, in Miletus, there was reserved seating. This was the case probably in elsewhere, but we don't always have the surviving evidence for it. And here we have, for example, goldsmiths having reserved seating, important civic functionaries of Miletus having seating, probably functionaries from the temple in Didyma having seating in the Miletus theater. Uh, there's some hints of that. Alongside that, reserved seating for the Judeans and God-fearers. Or, 
the inscription could say, the Judeans also known as God-fearers. It's either Judeans and Gentiles who worship the Judean God, or Judeans who think of themselves as fearers of God. So there's two different ways of interpreting that inscription. So there's another instance of something that shows integration of, in some way. Even though it's just a very small example, it tells you something larger, doesn't it, about the potential for Judeans to fit within the Greek cities where they live, even though they engage in honoring their ancestral god, even though that honoring of their ancestral god excludes other gods, even though they have the Sabbath and no one else does. We know about these God-fearers from other evidence, so that's why I can refer to them as Gentiles. Acts of the Apostles in your Bible... So this is from the late first century that an author wrote a story of Jesus, volume one, a story of the church, volume two, and then the Acts of the Apostles is what we're talking about here. So throughout that second volume of Luke-Acts, the author refers to a similar terminology to what we're seeing here, to God-fearers. It becomes clear when you're reading the narrative that that Judean-influenced Greek-writing author knows of the existence of this uh, idea in the world he lives in. Namely, that there are Gentiles, Greeks and Romans, or Syrians, or what have you, who have an interest in honoring the Judean God. And there are varying options of relating to the Judean group in the community where you live, if you're one of these God-fearers. We have quite a spectrum of evidence, so that you could be a Gentile who just thinks it's worth honoring the Judean God alongside your gods. We have evidence that people did this. Gentiles, Greeks and Romans adding the Judean God to the pantheon of gods. You have Gentiles who start to associate with Judean synagogues more fully and maybe go to the synagogue on Sabbath and maybe start to think of the Judean God as the only God you should honor. You have Gentiles who do that, go to the Judean synagogue regularly, think you should honor only the Judean God and go to the point of wanting to be integrated within this cultural minority group. Greeks acculturating to a Judean ethnic group to the point where they decide they want to follow the Torah, the ancestral customs of the Judeans, which primarily, to begin with, means circumcision. So most likely the word proselyte, when you encounter it, involves someone who has joined the ethnic group to the point of following the ancestral customs, including circumcision. So you have a range of possibilities, don't you? In Greeks or in, in cities in Asia Minor, mainly Greeks, but maybe Phrygians and Lydians, acculturating to a local ethnic group and actually becoming part of an ethnic group. It's sort of the other side of the coin of acculturation. It's not Judeans only acculturating to society around them, to Greeks and Romans. It's sometimes Greeks and Romans acculturating to Judeans. Something we have talked about that relates to this God-fearer thing is that Marcus Menatius on Delos, who is honored by the the Berutians. Remember that they honored that Marcus Menatius, the Roman banker. He's a different ethnic group than them. They're Berutians from Phoenicia in a Berutian ethnic group association. He's a Roman banker. They honor him. But one of the things they do in honoring him is give him seats in the meeting place at, uh, at important festivals of the ethnic group. He's being integrated. He's, he's sort of being acculturated to some degree this Roman, to the ethnic groups honoring of its uh, ancestral gods. 
and participating within the festivals and meals that they have in honor of their God. So there's, loosely speaking, a God-fearer, but not involving Judea. It's a Roman joining a uh, Phoenician ethnic group here, uh, Greeks uh, joining and participating within a Judean ethnic group. So obviously the attitude, this, the, the even existence of God-fearers tells you that the attitudes towards Judeans range, don't they? You have authors condemning Judeans like Appian that we're going to read about. Then you have Gentiles who join a Judean group. That's not the same opinion, is it? There's a huge range of opinion about how to view immigrant groups of different kinds, including Judean immigrant groups within these cities in Asia Minor, and that's what I uh, hope you notice about that. Judeans at Sardis, descendants of the Judeans and Josephus' decrees. Remember, we had two decrees involving the Judeans at Sardis. Both of them involved being given a place by the civic institutions of Sardis to have their meetings. So that's back in the first century BCE that we have evidence of Judeans and Sardis with some level of positive relation with the civic authorities. And that they have their own place to, that that's the one that has their own court to deal with their own struggles among one another uh, and that they have permission to, do, to engage in their ancestral customs. Remember that in Josephus? So centuries and centuries later, we once again see evidence, a big gap in between, with no evidence of them existing, but obviously they did, hundreds of years of us not knowing a thing about what's going on, but they're there. Then suddenly, in the, uh, most likely in the late 200 CE or early 300 CE, we have the Judeans with a, their meeting place in the Bath Gymnasium complex at Sardis, another central Greek cultural institution. The bath and gymnasium combined. Gymnasium, remember, is a place you get educated. It's a, it's a cultural institution. So the bath gymnasium complex. Here is the hall that we were just talking about. Uh, there's the table. There's the seating at the front for the elders. The Torah shrine's over here that you can't see further on this, this wall here. They have nice mosaic floors. And back here, when you enter in, there's a big uh, entryway with a fountain. So right next door to that part of the bath gymnasium complex, remember they have a long stretching hall on one side of the bath gymnasium, right next door is the imperial cult hall. So within the bath gymnasium complex at Sardis is a temple devoted to the emperors as gods. What's interesting is that the synagogue is right here, right next to it, within the bath gymnasium complex. One of the doors of this section that was turned into the synagogue, remember this, Judeans acquired the use of this building and actually acquired possession of it and could renovate it. One of the renovations they did was to totally shut off a doorway that went straight into the Imperial Cult Hall. This is in some, some way symbolic of what we're talking about here, right? The Judeans fit, and yet they set themselves apart in some ways, right? They fit in some ways, and they set themselves apart in other ways. So let's turn to this one final example of integration and acculturation, and that is the Judeans at Hierapolis. You didn't get to read these inscriptions, but let me just at least scan through a few of the inscriptions from, and explain to you a few of the inscriptions from Hierapolis in Asia Minor. This is in Phrygia, in the region of Phrygia, inland in Asia Minor. We have 21 inscriptions from this one site involving Judeans. So we have 21 grave inscriptions involving Judeans at Hierapolis. It's quite extensive. We don't usually have that much from one place. 
Now, not every one of these grave inscriptions involves mentioning or even saying anything about the existence of a Judean group or an association or a synagogue. The vast majority of them simply identify the deceased as being a Judean by, eth by ethnicity and mention their family in the same way uh, many of the other uh, grave inscriptions that Hierapolis do. So they're almost indistinguishable, those ones, from the other grave inscriptions of where a family buries a member of their family at Hierapolis. When Greeks do the same or Phrygians do the same thing, it's almost identical except for these ones mention that they're Judean by, ethnic, by ethnicity. So already that's saying something about integration. They're right in the same graveyards as their fellow inhabitants of Hierapolis, these individuals uh, and families who bury the uh, deceased members. But in three of the inscriptions, there's an explicit mention of a group of Judeans. And I want to read you those inscriptions and then say something about what they indicate about structural assimilation. Does anyone remember that type of assimilation from last time? It's the way in which an ethnic group or an individual person from an ethnic group assimilates and participates within the structures of society. That could be political structures, the civic assembly. That could be economic structures, the marketplace. That could be for legal structures, courts. Structural assimilation that a sociologist talk about is how much a given ethnic group as participant within the host society's institutions. And so these inscriptions provide interesting examples of structural assimilation in some ways. Let me read you uh, the, the three that involve a group and then a fourth one that doesn't mention a Judean group, but is quite fascinating for issues of acculturation. It involves God fears potentially again. Here's the first one though. The grave and the burial ground beneath it, together with the base and the place belong to Aurelia Glucanus, daughter of Ammianos, and her husband Marcus Aurelius Alexander Theophilus, also known as Aphelius, of the Judeans. They will be buried in it, but it is not lawful for anyone else to be buried in it. If it is violated, the guilty one will pay a fine of 1,000 denaria to the people of the Judeans what they're calling the group of Judeans here, the people of the Judeans, the Laos. A copy of this inscription was placed in the civic archives. So this is, if, if you knew your inscriptions from Hierapolis, the, the typical Gentile ones are the exact same format as this one. This is, this is nothing, there's nothing Judean about this inscription in terms of the form of the grave inscription, nor is there anything particularly Judean it, in it, except for the mention of the Judean group, with regard to giving a group responsibility for fines for violation. I did talk about that before. That's typical. But what's not typical is to choose the Judean group necessarily to do that. That's where, where the Judean identity of this family comes out. They, they explicitly call themselves Judeans, and then they specify that the Judean group will be recipient of any fines for violation of the grave. But look at this last little mention. It's such a little mention that you've got to really draw your attention to it to see a significance of it. A copy of this inscription was placed in the archives. They're talking about an institution of the Greek city-state, the civic archives. It implies something to put a copy of the inscription into the civic archives. It implies that you will take advantage of the city's means of ensuring justice. 
whatever it is. We don't always know the details of how courts work in the Greek city-states of Asia Minor. But what's clear here is including an extra copy of the inscription is to prevent violation of the grave. And there's a presumption that the civic institutions of uh, Hierapolis will be used in order to ensure that. That's what I mean by structural assimilation. Uh, by the way, the previous one was from the late 2nd century or early 3rd, so maybe 190 to 220 CE, just to give you a rough idea of what time period. This next one is from the mid to late 2nd century, so 150 to 200 CE approximately. This grave and the surrounding place belong to Aurelia Augusta, daughter of Zodocus. In it, she, her husband, who is called Lucianos, also known as Hagnos, and their children will be buried. But if anyone else is buried here, the violator will pay a fine of 300 denaria to the settlement of the Judeans who are settled in Hierapolis, and 100 denaria to the one who found out about the violation. A copy of this inscription was placed in the archives. What's interesting is we only have three mentions of a Judean group or association at Hierapolis, and each of the three mentions of it give it a different title. The previous one was called the people of the Judeans. This one's called the settlement of the Judeans who are settled in Hierapolis. Interesting. I'm not sure whether to make of that. That there was more than one association of Judeans? Maybe. It's not out of the question. Or do they just use different terminology for themselves at different periods? But this is roughly the same period. Here's the third one. The grave, the burial ground beneath it, and the area around it belong to Nicotimus Lycidas, son of Artemisius. In it, he has buried Apia, his wife. A copy of this inscription was placed into the archives. Judean. The other side of the inscription. So this is two sides of the same monument. The grave and the place around it belong to Aurelius Heortasius Julianus, Tripolitan, Judean, now living in Hierapolis. There's multiple identities again. He's from the city called Tripolis, either in Asia Minor or elsewhere. There's multiple examples of Tripolises. When he has his grave set up, he wants to be known as a Tripolitan, a Judean, and now he lives in Hierapolis. He's also a Hierapolitan, as well as a Tripolitan and a Judean. In it, he and his wife, Lucanus, will be buried and let their children be buried here as well. It is not lawful for anyone other to, other to be buried in it. If someone does such things, he will pay two silver coins to the most holy synagogue. They're called a synagogue in that one, gathering. It's the word synagogue means gathering, right? So the people of the Judeans, the settlement of the Judeans, and the synagogue of the Judeans. Are these different groups of Judeans, or are they the same? I'm not sure. This fourth one is absolutely amazing for the type of thing I like to study. Hopefully you find it somewhat interesting. This grave and the burrowed ground beneath it, together with the surrounding place, belong to Publius Aelius Glucon Zuxinus Alienus, and to Aurelia Amia, husband and wife, daughter of Amianus Seleucus. In it, he will bury himself, his wife, and his children, but no one else is permitted to be buried here. He left behind 200 denaria for the grave crowning ceremony to the most holy presidency of the Purple Dyers, Purple Dyers Guild, so that it would produce from the interest enough for each to take a share in the seventh month during the festival of unleavened bread. Likewise, he also left behind 150 denaria for the grave crowning ceremony to the Sanhedrin of carpet weavers, the association of carpet weavers, so that the revenues from the interest should be distributed half during the Feast of Calends, 
on the eighth day of the fourth month, and half during the festival of Pentecost. A copy of this inscription was placed in the archives. Fascinating. No identification explicitly of the deceased being Judeans. And yet, the deceased have left behind money to two guilds, regular guilds, at Hierapolis. One of the guilds is responsible for coming at a certain time of year, during a certain festival, each year, to the grave, in order to remember the deceased and in order to take care of the grave. They do that on a Judean festival. Those of you who know your Judean culture know that the festival on Leavened Bread is an important Judean festival associated with Passover, right? So that's the purple dyers are supposed to come to this grave on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Judean Feast of Unleavened Bread, in order to engage in some sort of memory of the deceased and to uh, do some other things, rituals of some sort. The other group, the carpet weavers, come twice. They come on the Feast of Calends. Is that a Judean holiday? No. Feast of Calends is the Roman New Year. It became our New Year, January 1st. It's the Roman, not Greek, not Phrygian, but the Roman New Year. Well, here they're celebrating a Roman thing. This is acculturation to Roman practices by Hierapolitans, but Hierapolitans who also celebrate Judean festivals. The carpet weavers do it on the Roman New Year and on Pentecost, Festival of Pentecost, another important Judean festival. Now, what to make of this? Because at nowhere in this inscription does it explicitly say that anyone is Judean. So potentially, both the deceased and the people who are members of these guilds potentially are all Gentiles. In which case, they would be an example of not calling themselves this, but would be an example of what we're calling God-fearers. Gentiles in Hierapolis devoted to the Judean God and to some degree acculturated to that ethnic group's activities to the point where they're actually celebrating Judean festivals. One possibility. Another possibility that the deceased and his family may be their Judeans, but they don't say it. So they may be God-fearers too. They may be Judean. But what we know from other evidence of purple dyers at Hierapolis is this. There is no evidence whatsoever that it's an entirely Judean guild of purple dyers. We have lots of evidence for the purple dyers at Hierapolis from other inscriptions that show no signs of any connection to Judeans and no signs of Judean them being solely Judean. What I'm suggesting to you is this. These guilds include some Judeans among them and the rest mostly Gentiles. This person who has died is either a Judean or a Gentile God-fearer who wants to be remembered on Judean holidays. He asks, like other people at Hierapolis do, for a guild to take care of the grave and come and, and do the celebrations and leaves money to the, the groups in order to do this. That's typical at Hierapolis, among non-Judeans, among everyone. But what's interesting here is the mixture, the likelihood that we have here guilds with a mixture of members, some of which are Judeans, some of which are just Greeks and others from Hierapolis. So this inscription tells you a lot about interactions, no matter how you interpret it, between different cultural groups here, between Judeans and non-Judeans at Hierapolis. And you have here people celebrating Judean festivals in the context of this sort of grave ceremonies that take place at Hierapolis. 
So, so at Hierapolis, at least, you have clear examples of Judeans integrating themselves in various ways. They feel like the civic institutions, uh, at least the justice institutions of Hierapolis, are a place that they'll get justice. The civic archives, they put their inscriptions into. They also participate in the typical burial practices of Hierapolis, including the inclusion of guilds as recipients of fines or guilds as a recipient of a fund a fund in order to take care of the grave. We have plenty of evidence from other inscriptions from Hierapolis that that's a specifically Hierapolitan practice, right, from that city. And the Judeans have adopted it and have taken on that way of burying their family members. So that was my final example of this sort of dynamic process of acculturation that we see with ethnic groups, including Judeans.